On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of God. One of the trickiest objections to Christianity, I think, is when people say, you know, I really like Jesus. I think he was a really great man. He preached peace and love. I think he's brilliant, like Jesus, big fan, but I can't stand the church. The church is full of racists and bigots and hypocrites 
and judgmental people and sexist. I just, I love Jesus, but I just can't be doing with the church. You ever hear that objection? That happens quite a lot. Maybe it's your objection. Maybe this is something you're considering even as you're watching this message. And the reason I think it's tricky, at least for me as a believer, is that it immediately puts you on the defensive. See, with most tough questions, the five big S's like suffering, sexuality, scripture, slavery, science, those big five, you're not, I'm not personally implicated in the sense that people don't think it's my fault that those things are true. People don't think I'm responsible for suffering or Christianity's problem with slavery. They're not usually accusing me. Whereas when it comes to the problem with the church, I'm on the defensive. I'm in the firing line. Someone's saying, basically, they're being nice, but they're going, yeah, it's people like you that are the problem that mean I don't want to take Christianity seriously. And when that happens, it's kind of tempting to do one of two things. See, one of them is to basically throw the entire global church under the bus and say something like, you know, to try and show you're different, you say something like, you're right. Christians are awful. Christians are like terrible, hideous people. I really hate them too. Fortunately, I'm not like that. But you're right, most people are. They're dreadful. Totally agree with you. Now, that's not a very good response. The the problem is not just that that's a bit superior and really kind of smug, although it is. It's also untrue, right? Because it's not true that you're better than all other Christians, is it? You and I know that. I know it's not true. I know that if I was to say, yeah, those guys are awful, I'm really going, yeah, my whole gospel is based on the idea that I am just as much in need of saving and grace as they are. So it doesn't, it's not even true by a Christian's own terms. So it doesn't work. It comes across as a bit arrogant and smug, and it's also untrue. But that option, the throw the, the whole church under the bus, is one way of handling it. The other way, which is also kind of tempting, is to do the opposite and fiercely defend the honor of the church as if you were defending your own family, which, of course, in a way you are. Because the church is your family, and therefore it is a bit offensive when somebody says something really horrible about the church. Because you go, these are my people. I love them. They're my brothers and sisters. But the problem is what you can then do is to act to whitewash the church and effectively say, how can you say that? And make a number of statements that are true but slightly miss the point. You can say, Christians, did you know, and this is true, Christians are the most diverse community in the country, and they are. Or you could say Christians volunteer more hours. Loads of studies show they volunteer more hours. They give a higher percentage of their income. Basically, what you're trying to say is Christians are better people than everyone else. And by some metrics, you might even say that's true. And I think in some ways it is. But it doesn't let us off the hook because we still have an extremely complicated and in some places pretty dark history of all sorts of skeletons in our cupboards, witch hunts or anti-Semitism or the Inquisition or the slave trade or sex scandals in the modern day. And so we've got all kinds of problems in our history and probably the person I'm speaking to has also met a bunch of rude, unpleasant Christians. And so they know, and I know, because I've met rude, unpleasant Christians as well, Um, particularly on the internet, and as a result of both of those things, I think, who am I kidding here? I can't act like the church has got no nothing to hide or no problems because, of course, we do. So either the throw the church under the bus response or the whitewash the church response, both of them don't really work. But they're the two things that emotionally I almost feel I want to do to resolve this challenging question. You may have faced that dilemma. I don't know. If you have, Luke chapter 5 is a huge help. It's such a refreshing passage because until now in this gospel, Luke has basically been telling us about Jesus. 
entirely Jesus, really. His birth, his baptism, his temptation, his preaching and healing. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus begins to get followers. And it was all going so well. And now we've got people. Like, you know, it's like the, ch- and the, the word church isn't used here, but this is the beginning of what you might call the church, in that Jesus is now no longer just preaching a manifesto of the kingdom and getting baptized and obviously being even born, as we've seen so far in this gospel, but Jesus is now gathering people. And those followers, it turns out, are nothing like as impressive as Jesus is. You notice that as soon as you start reading. And in fact, the Pharisees make this exact point in verse 30, don't they? The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why, Jesus, why, even Jesus' followers, why do, you, why do your followers contain so many completely awful human beings? And the church has always faced that charge. It's been a major attack on the Christian message since the church has been around. Jesus is okay, or even great, but why on earth is he hanging out with all of these people? And in the Roman world, they was, Jesus is great, but why do so many women and slaves get attracted to this, men would say? Right? It's obviously it for idiots. Otherwise, these people wouldn't be attracted. In the Enlightenment period, you know, Europeans would say, yeah, Jesus, like Jesus as a sort of religious teacher, but why on earth does he attract all of these superstitious morons who believe in miracles? And modern progressives might say, yeah, Jesus is great, lovely peace and love, but why does he attract all of these rednecks in America, all these bigoted people who look down their noses at everybody else and believe that, you know, certain things are right and wrong? Why on earth? And so the challenge is frequently in every generation, like Jesus, but what about these people? So how does Jesus respond to that charge? He responds brilliantly. He knocks it out of the park. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus' response is simply to say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a fantastic response. I call it the hospital defense, right? So this is like, imagine somebody who said to you, I love healthcare, just can't stand hospitals. Hospitals are awful. I think healthcare is a wonderful idea. I think it's a really great vision. I believe in it. I'm proud of it. I would support it. And if that's all there was, I'd go, yeah, that's for me. Count me in. Healthcare. Hospitals, on the other hand, are awful. They have this sort of horrible, sterile smell. And do you know what? I visited a hospital recently, and it was full of sick people. Like, they were everywhere. It was just all hospitals. On the posters, they act like this is all people being well and strong, and they've got lovely, smiling doctors reaching down. But in practice, that's not what happened at all. They're full of, there's lots of old people there. There's people in wheelchairs. People are covered in blankets. It smells bad. Some people are vomiting. Some people are tucked It's just full of sick people. And I just can't stand the idea that healthcare has been corrupted into this terrible institution called a hospital. The nurses sneeze. I saw one doctor with a limp. They're not even healthy themselves. Such a bunch of hypocrites. Now, if you were to meet someone like that, I suspect, how would you respond? I suspect that one of the things you'd say is, of course, hospitals are put full of sick people. That's why they're in hospital. They are full of sick people. And no, they're not in perfect health. Nor are the doctors, actually. The doctors and the nurses are not perfect either. But all the people in the hospital are a lot more alive than they would have been if they were dying at home on their own. And the test here should not be, are there sick people in a hospital? The test should be, is the hospital actually making them better? Is healthcare mediated through this institution making their lives better? 
Is it strengthening them? Is it making them stronger and healthier and more able to cope? Sick people need hospitals. And sinful people like me and like you need Jesus. And that's why the church exists. And Luke 5 in some ways is a story of how those kinds of people find him and have their lives changed. So I want to look at these people who the king calls into his kingdom. I want to, let's consider who Jesus calls, how he changes them, and what we today should do about it. Who Jesus calls, how he changes them, and what we as disciples should do about it. Who does Jesus call? Do you read this passage? He basically calls washouts, mostly, doesn't he? Not shiny, happy people with great educations and good prospects and jobs and beautiful smiles. Usually, people like that in the Gospels reject Jesus because they say the kingdom's too costly. And a lot of people in our culture do as well. But actually, the gospel doesn't mainly seem to reach the dynamic and the dazzling and the dominant. It seems to reach the destitute and the despised and the depressed and the discouraged, which I find very reassuring, because that's where I am without Jesus as well. And so today's passage has four stories which, in different ways, reveal to us people who are in desperate need. The, The four stories are the call of the first disciples who are fishing, the healing of a leper, the healing and forgiveness of a paralyzed guy, and dinner with Levi and his tax collector friends. And all four of them are in need. They're in need in very different ways, though. The first group are what I call vocationally disappointed. That is, what they're doing in work is not working. They're they're doing their job. Simon's first words, and first words in the Bible are often very significant in introducing a character. And Simon's first words are, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, Simon, James, and John, for all I know, may have been great fishermen. But every time I see them in the Gospels trying to fish, they're having a shocker. Have you noticed that? They've gone out, they haven't caught anything, their boat is sinking, they're terrified of the waves, they're in the middle of a storm, they go out and don't catch anything again. That's how their fishing career seems to look in the Gospels. And then Jesus is calling. So they are vocationally disappointed when Jesus comes to meet them. The second, if you like, second individual we meet is not vocationally disappointed he's socially disgusting right this is the leper in verse 12 while Jesus was in one of the cities there came a man full of leprosy and when he saw Jesus he fell on his face and begged him Lord if you will you can make me clean verse 12 interesting isn't it the leper is crying out not for the pain to go or the itching to stop he's crying out to be cleansed that is to be restored and accepted into community in Israel. Because if you're a leper, you have to stand away from community. You can't participate. So he's wanting to be socially, if you like, reintegrated and accepted and made clean and ceremonially made clean. And then Jesus is calling and Jesus restores him. So he's vocationally disappointed. We've got a socially disgusting person. Then we've got a physically disabled person. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus, verse 19. And this man, actually, it turns out, has got another problem as well, which he didn't know, which is he's not just physically disabled, but he's spiritually desperate. Now, Jesus, interestingly, sees this man lying on a mat, unable to walk, and then says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? Jesus knows this man isn't just physically in need, he's also spiritually in need, and so he forgives his sins. And then says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
So Jesus speaks to the physically disabled and spiritually desperate man and says, your sins have been forgiven and your sickness has been healed. Now get up, walk in freedom with your head held high. So I've got another kind of person in double, a double whammy of need, if you like. And then the final story is about people who are morally despicable. After this, verse 27, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Levi is a financial predator. Now, it's so hard for us to get this. Tax collectors in our world, you think, what's wrong with working for the inland revenue? What's wrong with being somebody who comes? You know, there's probably got people in this church who do that. So that does, that's not, we don't experience the moral disgust and revulsion. So imagine I was to say, Jesus went round and had dinner with a group of paedophiles. He was sitting in the house, he was eating and drinking with Peter, just hanging out with the paedophile ring. How would you feel about that choice of who to spend his time with? I'm not saying the two are analogous in always, I'm just saying that in our culture, that might be the best equivalent for the, I can't believe you're hanging out with those people. And Levi is a financial predator who is despised and morally disgusting to people in his day. And then Jesus is calling. And he says, you come and follow me. Are you hurting and broken within? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? You thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. And throughout this story, Jesus is calling needy, desperate people. But Jesus doesn't just call them. He, out, he also changes them. And this is where hope kicks in, because he doesn't just say, come and stay the same. It, we, we always say this, we come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. Right? Followers in the kingdom of God, you come as you are, but you don't stay as you are. And by the end of this passage, the fishermen are on mission. The leper is cleansed and restored to community. The paralyzed guy is forgiven and walking. The tax collector is one of the 12, and the Pharisees are very annoyed. Right? That's the change that seems to happen as a result of the ministry of Jesus. So how does Jesus transform people? How does the kingdom of God bring change? And basically, the answer is, in these four stories, Jesus brings change through word, prayer, power, and table. Right? In these four stories, very quickly, word. Right? Verse 1, the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word. I love that as a description of discipleship. That's, that's, what I, that's what I like to think is happening, even right now. That people are pressing in, not to me, but to hear the word of God. They're pressing in. I want to hear, what did he say? I want to make sure I've got it. And uh, you just, it's the powerful way in which God changes people by means of the word of God. I heard this, a friend of mine told me a wonderful story two weeks back about an Iranian woman he'd come across who had simply got converted from Islam to Christianity because she'd start, her uncle had said, you should read the Injil, the gospel. And so she starts reading Luke's gospel. And then she said this. She said, I got halfway through Luke's gospel and I realized that God was not the God of the Ayatollahs. He must be the Jesus God. And she got converted simply through reading the word. And I met so many people like that. And they say, how did you get converted? You say, basically, I read the Bible. And the word of God brought change. Not just great wise application, all this stuff. Just the word of God seemed to change me. And that's what happened to this woman. And it's what happens to the disciples. Jesus speaks and they respond. And at your word, I will let down the nets, they say. And they go, okay, you said it, I'm going to do it. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're going to come and catch men now. And they say, okay, you said it, I'm going to do it. The word brings change. Secondly, prayer is one of the ways in which God changes people. 
he fell on his face, this leper, and he begged him, if, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's effectively praying to Jesus, isn't he? And Jesus stretches out his hand and says, I will be clean. And the leprosy left him. And so people are changed by prayer. They're changed by their prayers and, of course, also by Jesus' prayers. If you look at verse 16, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In other words, we're changed not just by our prayers, but by his prayers. It's both of those prayers working together. Thirdly, people are changed through the power of God. Word, prayer, and power. Verse 17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Verse 26, amazement seized them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today because the power of God has been made manifest. And we've been changed by the power that we've either experienced in ourselves or seen in others. And by the way, friends, that same power lives in us. It's for you. That's the power that's at work that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and at work in me. And so people are changed through the power of God in Jesus' healing authority ministry. And fourthly, people are changed through the table. Verse 29, this is the slightly surprising word in this story, but it's absolutely what happens. Verse 29, Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus changes people by having meals with them. Right? Some, you might think the others sound very spiritual. This one's very practical. Eating and drinking with people makes a powerful statement. It is Jesus' way of saying, I don't find this person disgusting. I love them. I welcome them. And that is one of the weird paradoxes at the heart of Christianity, which is that unconditional acceptance is a powerful force for change. People are transformed by being accepted even though they haven't been transformed yet. It's an amazing, it's the riddle of grace, effectively, at the very heart of the gospel, that the favour of God is unmerited and transforming. That's what grace is, the unmerited, transforming favour of God. And you see it in this story, that by being welcomed and accepted without having done anything, people are effectively caused to change as a result of coming together at the table with Jesus. So Jesus transforms people through word, prayer, power and table, and he takes this bunch of oddballs and misfits and washouts, people just like me and just like you, and he transforms us through those four means. So finally, what do we do about that? If that's, if that's how Jesus changes people, what does that mean for the way we live as disciples today? And the answer is very timely for this particular moment in history, as in today. Right? This is particularly pressing, if you like, on the 16th of May, 2021. We get, what do you do? How do we respond to this? What we do is we, we start to gather together as kingdom people to hear the king's word, to pray kingdom prayers, to experience kingdom power, and to eat at the king's table. That's what we do. Now that practically has been all but impossible for almost all of us for much of the last year, if not all of it. And some of us, of course, are still going to find it difficult for a bunch of sometimes very good reasons. But from tomorrow, it is going to become easier, and especially next month, it'll become hopefully a lot easier to gather again as a people. And this is of such central importance for us as a community that this Christian life is not ultimately intended to be lived in isolation. These four stories are remarkably corporate, aren't they? Right? Peter, Andrew, James and John are called together as a group. 
The leper is immediately told, go to the priests so that they can sign off on the fact you've been healed and you can be readmitted to temple worship and community. The paralyzed man is only able to get into Jesus because he's been carried by a bunch of his friends. And many of us have experienced that this last year, I suspect, that our faith has been weak, but we have been carried by others who have helped us. And Jesus, of course, spends time with loads of tax collectors at a massive meal for lots of different people. Kingdom people, it seems, are changed as part of a kingdom community. And sometimes being part of the community is more costly to us than it would be to do things on our own, right? In our context, that means, yeah, we are going to have to start getting up earlier, maybe. Or we're going to have to get dressed before we go to church, which some of us haven't been doing for a long, long time. We're going to have to serve in ways that we haven't until now. So it might be more costly in some ways to function as part of a community, but the invitation of the kingdom is an invitation to join a kingdom community. And when that community gathers... They actually do the exact same four things that these people did back in Luke chapter 5. They pray with or without music. Effectively, songs are sung prayers, aren't they? They hear God's word. They share the Lord's Supper. And they experience the Spirit's power. That effectively, the four things that these people who are attracted to Jesus do on entry of the kingdom are still the things that kingdom people do in the kingdom community today. We do, in other words, how do we respond to this kind of passage and this kind of way God changes people? We say, I want to be changed, so I'm going to keep doing the things that Jesus did for them, and I'm going to keep expecting him to do that for me, and I'm going to keep doing the things that the church has always done. The Heidelberg Catechism, many of you know I'm a big fan. 500-year-old Q&A for Christians. Question, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? That's the one about keeping the Sabbath. Answer, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, Sunday, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. That's what we do. That's how the church responds to a passage like this. How does God change people in the kingdom? Through word, prayer, power and table and how do we participate in that or we participate in kingdom community trusting that God's words and the prayers of the saints and the power of God and serving the poor and coming to the table and sharing the Lord's Supper together is going to bring the same kind of transformation for us as it did for them and as we do that we find ourselves commissioned like the disciples to go and become fishers of men and women we become cleansed like the leper and restored and ransomed and healed and made whole We become healed and forgiven like the paralyzed man and we are invited to leave everything, all our old life, and follow Jesus like Levi. And most joyfully of all, we are invited to come to Jesus and find grace in Christ because the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven you, Jesus says. Now go in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the kingdom of God. Thank you for the people who are welcome in it. Thank you for the way that you bring change in and through it. And thank you for the invitation to us to participate in it. Lord, as we begin to gather more and more over this next month and two months as a church, would you move among us powerfully? May we experience your power. May we experience welcome at your table. May our prayers be heard and answered. And may we encounter the transformative power of the word of God again and again in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.